Morning. All right, uh, we are here at Second Chronicles chapter 36. It's the last installment of this series that we have given ourselves over to, to in the Chronicles, and it has been an amazing, amazing ride. I hope you have gotten so much out of it. Speaking of encouragement to God's people, speaking of revivals and what God was doing and uh, coming to the end of um, the kingdom, uh, at least the end for a while. And so as we come to our, our passage today, uh, just so you can kind of get your bearings of where we're at, God, of course, had established the kingdom of Israel in about uh, 1000 AD or BC, a little bit before that. Uh, and now we are 400 years later, we're at the, about 600 And things are coming to an end because the people of Judah have now been faithless. And they are dealing with uh, the judgments of God on their life. And so we're we're at kind of a heavy passage today, quite frankly. It's not fun. There are parts of the passage we read and we go, wow, that's not a... Like if I could choose an encouraging message... Maybe this wouldn't be it. But that's one of the things I love about uh, the Bible and this church, that as you go through hard passages, uh, there is much encouragement in them and through them. And there is much encouragement in this passage as we turn to it. So what I want to do is read from 2 Chronicles chapter 36, verse 15. We'll read to the end of the chapter. Uh, the first 14 verses we'll look at later, and it basically says, these are the last four kings, and they were all bad. They were bad guys, all right? And so now we pick it up at verse 15. The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent word to them through his messengers again and again, because he had pity on his people and on his dwelling place. But they mocked God's messengers They despised his words and scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord was aroused against his people and there was no remedy. He brought up against them the king of the Babylonians who who killed their young men with the sword in the sanctuary and spared neither young man nor young woman, old man or aged. God handed all of them over to Nebuchadnezzar. He carried to Babylon all the articles from the temple of God, both large and small, and the treasures of the Lord's temple and the treasures of the king and the officials. They set fire to God's temple and broke down the wall of Jerusalem. They burned all the palaces and destroyed everything of value there. He carried into exile to Babylon the remnant who escaped from the sword and they became servants to him and his sons until the kingdom of Persia came to power. The land enjoyed its Sabbath rests all the time of its desolation. It rested until the 70 years were completed in fulfillment of the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken 
the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and to put it in writing. This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem and Judah. Anyone of his people among you, may the Lord his God be with him and let him go up. Let's pray. Lord, when there are smoldering ashes to deal with, there's a lot of questions to answer. And we, together with uh, the the people of the Old Testament, come to this passage uh, and, and are asking, why? What's happening here? And I pray that you would help us see what's happening here in such a way that our hearts will be turned to you, that our lives would be turned to you, and that you would be honored in every way. And so we need help for that to happen, Lord. And we ask for it now. Give us wisdom because we lack it. And we pray these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the passage today is an incredible passage because we are, again, seeing the end of a kingdom, or at least a temporary end of a kingdom. We're not seeing the end of the throne, but we are definitely seeing a time frame where there's no Israelites on the throne in kingdom, in in Jerusalem, excuse me. Now, the promise that God had made to David happened many, many years earlier in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And so if you want to turn there with me for a few moments, God had made a promise to David, a very important promise, promise, and he was telling him in 2 Samuel chapter 7 that he was going to be, David would be on the throne, uh, someone from his family would be on the throne forever. The Lord declares to you, we're kind of at uh, halfway through verse 11 of 2 Samuel 7, the Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you. Who will come come from your own body? And I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who uh, who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father. He will be my son. When he goes wrong, I will punish him with the rod of men with floggings inflicted by men. But my love will never be taken away from him. And so we see in 2 Samuel chapter 7 that God has made a promise to David that there was going to be someone on the throne of Israel all the time from his family. And David's response is very telling, and it's helping us today. So look at his response uh, in verse 18. David prays back to God in response to God's promise to him. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord. Boy, it's good to sit before the Lord, isn't it? And he said, Who am I, O sovereign Lord? And what is my family that you have brought me this far? And as if this were not enough in your sight, O sovereign Lord, you have also spoken about the future of the house of your servant 
Is this your usual way of dealing with man? O sovereign Lord, what more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O sovereign Lord. For the sake of your word and according to your will, you have done this great thing and have made it known to your servant. And he goes on from there. And David, in his response, says, why would you put me on this throne? And he comes to the conclusion that it's not because of anything that David has done, but it's only for the glory of God's name. In other words, that God's name would be known everywhere. And so that brings me to this question, what does it mean to glorify God's name? We talk about that all the time. We use the word all the time. But really, God was putting David on the throne to make much, not of David, although he did make a great name in David, but that David could make a great name of God. So how does that take place? I jotted down a few ideas of how we glorify God, okay? Number one, we need to fear the Lord. And as David took the throne, he was saying to the generations after him, the way we are going to be God's faithful people is to fear him. That is to revere him in all that we do. To see his word, read his word, live out his word, to worship God only. And one of the problems of the day that we're reading, as a lot of trouble has come into the kingdom, there is a lot of worshiping other gods that has kind of crept in to the fabric of what Israel was all about, of what Judah was all about. But if we would... Fear the Lord, and that really speaks of our morality, how we make choices. Listen, here we are with the people of God, and we need to not say, well, that was for yesterday, that was Judah, we're free from that. In this place here today, we have to ask ourselves, are we the kind of people who are revering God? That is, we fear Him. That is, when God speaks of what ought to be, and, and when He teaches us of His morality... We follow in it. We do not argue against it. We don't come here on Sunday morning and put on a show knowing full well that we're living a different kind of life behind closed doors in our own home. So we make much of God's great name by fearing Him. We make much of God's great name by trusting Him. We trust the Lord. David set out to trust the Lord. Every time there was a decision to make, he goes before the Lord and says, Lord, show me what to do. And even if it doesn't add up in my human brain, I will do what you've called me to do. Do you? My normal first response is to do what comes naturally or what seems to be common sense and then say later, God, please bless my common sense. And that's, that doesn't show trust right? The normal course for the people of God should be that we are diving into God's word with such frequency and such fervency that the word of God is informing every decision we make and we go to it first. And so we will make much of God if we go to the word and we make our decisions based on what the word is teaching us. That is, we let it guide us. Are you obeying the word of the Lord? That is, not living with, I know the Bible says, but I. I know the Bible says about morality, but I. I know the Bible says about the relationships, boyfriend-girlfriend relationships. I know what the Bible says, but I. I know what the Bible says about extolling and, and, and uh, 
honoring the name of God, but, but I. And we start living with these little areas of privacy or secrecy or inconsistency, and, and that is the beginning of not glorifying God. As David received this promise that there was going to be somebody on the throne forever, he knew that even God, when God said it, he said, if your son doesn't walk with me, I will discipline him. I will teach him to walk with me. But the third thing that needs to be true of us if we're going to make God's name great is that we need to love the Lord our God. It's our favorite thing to do to spend time with him. It's our favorite thing to do to hear from him. It's our favorite thing to do to listen to him and to to spend time in the word with him. We seek him. And I think the word I would put next to that, how you can tell if this is happening in your life, it's this word, contentment. The people of Israel were going after other gods. And that showed they didn't love the God they had. Right? And so this is what needs to be true of the people of God, that we have one living God, that we serve him, we respect or revere him, we fear him, and we obey him, we trust him, and we're satisfied with him. We're not looking for anything else. And that is the way the people of God live in this world, or the way we should live in this world. So here is the question. What happens when God makes a promise and says, this is how I'm going to treat the people of God? And for year after year after year, the people of God do not revere him, do not trust him, do not love him. Stated for 2013, here's the question. Will we, let me put it this way, should God continue to bless an unfaithful people? How long should God continue to bless an unfaithful people? The young people I talk to in this world today, this is the question that they have. They say, I want to live how I want to live and I want God to bless my life. I am going to do what I'm going to do. I'm going to respect who I want to respect or, or, or gods I want to respect. I'm going to worship the way I want to worship. I'm going to do what I'm going to do. I'm going to find people who tell me that that's okay. And I want God to bless me. That's the God who I want to serve, they say. Now, God takes a step back. Wait, wait hold on just a second. If God would allow us to live in that kind of world, he, he would cease to be the God of the Bible, right? He would cease to be holy if that were the kind of God he was. Yes, I've told you to be holy because I'm holy. I'm just kidding about that. Do what you want to do. Yes, I have told you that uh, uh, you should uh, set your heart on the things of, of the Lord and follow after me, but, but that's just a suggestion. If, if God would bless unfaithfulness, he would cease to be holy. He would cease to be just. It's not right that uh, an, somebody who would not care of the things of God and somebody who would serve the, the things of the Lord would, would, in essence, get the same reward, right? And that's what we'd be saying. Is that really, yeah, it's nice to, serve, to follow after God. It's nice to, to come after him. But at the end of the time, at the end of time, everybody gets the same reward. It really doesn't matter. 
That's not justice. And God wouldn't be rewarding. God wouldn't be just if he, if he behaved like that. He would not be good because he's told us the things that he requires of us. He has told us in Micah 6.8 exactly what he requires to love mercy and to do justice, to walk humbly with your God. He would cease to be true because he says one thing and he violates it in the next breath. He would cease to be loving because he would, be, in essence, be saying to his faithless people, do what you want, live how you want, I'm going to bless you all the days you live in this world. And then they would get to the end of the days in this world and they would face the judgment seat and they would see that they never placed their faith in God and they showed it year after year by the way they live life, but they never had to like, come to grips with it because God just kept blessing them. And, and they had no warning sign that something was wrong. So if God would be the kind of God who would just, just lay blessing over unfaithful people, he would, he would not be holy, he would not be just, he would not be good, he would not be truth-telling, he would not be loving, he would not be the God of the Bible. And again, a young person would come to me and say, well, if God doesn't bless me in this situation in my life, well, I'm, just, I'm not going to serve him. And some young people, some older people, think that they've got God in some kind of a wrestle hold. Like he's going to have to do something for them. And listen, this passage is a great statement to you and me. God does not change. I am not going to put God in a position where he's beholden to me. I'm not going to be putting God in a position where I can judge him. Never. God isn't God because you believe it. God is God. Right? So we come to this passage today and we're amazed that, that God has, in, in such goodness, warned his people and told them, listen, there, there is some trouble that's happening. Now let me just tell you kind of the, the story of these kings rather quickly, okay? And so here we are in Second Chronicles chapter 36, Jehoahaz. Jehoahaz was 23 years old when he became king and he reigned in Jerusalem three months. That's not a very long reign. And if you can find out in three months that somebody's not going to honor God, um, that's, that's pretty sad, all right? But that's what happened here. The king of Egypt took him away. And so basically there was a lot of um, turmoil in the land at the time. And so the Egypt was in power right now uh, at the writing of this verse. But back and forth, it was going between Egypt and Babylon and who was going to have reign over the area. And at this point, Jehoahaz was taken into captivity in Egypt. And they put on the throne Jehoiakim, verse 5. Jehoiakim was 25 years old when he became king. And he reigned in Jerusalem for 11 years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord his God, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, attacked him and bound him with bronze shackles uh, to take him to Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar also took to Babylon articles from the temple of the Lord and put them in the temple there. During this wave, it's the beginning of the end in Jerusalem, guys. It's coming to an end. This reign of many, many years of the kingdom, is finally, God is finally saying, you guys are not faithful to me. This is coming to an end. And so in 605 B.C., there was a wave of exiles taken away. Um, and included in that wave of people taken away, we'll look at this later, was, was Daniel. So Daniel was taken as a captive from his family and brought to Babylon. 
the king Jehoiakim was, taught, was, was brought away as well. The other events of Jehoiakim's reign, the detestable things he did, and all that was found against him are written in the book of the kings of Israel and Judah. And Jehoiachin, his son, succeeded him as king. Jehoiachin was 18 years old when he became king. And he reigned in Jerusalem three months and ten days. Now, I am no historian, but when they start measuring your reign as king in days, that's not a good thing, all right? He reigned for three months and ten days. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord. In the spring, King Nebuchadnezzar sent for him and brought him to Babylon together with the articles of value of the temple of the Lord, and he made Jehoiachin's uncle Zedekiah king over Judah and Jerusalem. So just so you know, Zedekiah is the son of Josiah, all right? So Josiah was a good king. Three of his sons have been king here in these little short stints, and none of them are are good, all right? They're not leading the country in the ways of the Lord. Zedekiah was 21 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 11 years. He did what was evil in the eyes of the Lord his God, and he did not humble himself before Jeremiah the prophet, who spoke the word of the Lord. He also rebelled against King Nebuchadnezzar, who had made him take an oath in God's name. He became stiff-necked and hardened his heart and would not turn to the Lord, the God of Israel. Furthermore, all the leaders of the priests and the people became more and more unfaithful following all the detestable practices of the nations and defiling the temple of the Lord, which he had consecrated in Jerusalem. Zedekiah, here he is. He is finally the last king of Judah. He's the last man standing. And if we look at his life, it's characterized by, um, it's, it's representative of what was going on in Judah in general at that time. So let's look at his life for just a minute. As we look down in verse 12, we see some things that were true about Zedekiah. He did that which was evil. He did some evil stuff. Now, before you throw stones, if somebody were to write the memoirs of your life, they could easily start out your life with the words, he or she did evil. Every person who's ever walked the face of the earth the story of their life could start out with, here's John, he did evil. That's the human condition. And so let's not throw too many stones at him on that front, okay? He started off and he did evil things. But uh, as he had opportunity to repent and turn, Zedekiah did not. He did evil. He did not humble himself before the prophet. Do you know that God sent Jeremiah to Zedekiah? And he sent the, the prophet saying to him time after time, he, he said, listen, humble yourself to Babylon. Just be their servant. Don't try to get out of the covenant that you've made with Babylon. This is God's uh, judgment on Judah. So let's submit to it. And this was a word from God through Jeremiah. Zedekiah wouldn't listen. I'm going to do do things my own way. He would not humble himself. He rebelled, right? He rebelled and did his own thing. He rebelled against the covenant that he made. He stood before Nebuchadnezzar, made a promise in God's name that he would submit himself to this oath, but he rebelled against it and went his own way. 
Now, this is a, a bad guy. He did evil. He did not humble himself. He rebelled. He was stiff-necked. That is, when confronted with these shortcomings, he firmly resisted listening to the content of them so he could continue to go his own way. He hardened his heart. That is, when he was given the gracious warning signs of the prophet and the people saying, remember the covenant, turn back to the Lord, he hardened his heart against the Lord and he would not turn. Is that true of us? Is that true of you? I would love for us not as me getting in your face, but as, as us before the Lord, taking the areas of our life that we are holding on to tightly and turning them over with empty hands before the Lord and honestly asking, Lord, search my heart. Have I done evil? Where have I done evil? Have I humbled myself? before you and put myself under the teaching of your word and under the authority of other people in my life? Have I thrown off agreements that I've made in this life, rebelling against them for my own whim? Am I stiff-necked? That is, when people bring areas of my life that need attention, is my first response to be angry and defensive? And is my second response to resolve to continue in my own way? Have I hardened my heart before you? That is, have I, do I, are there areas of my life that I know conflict with the clear teaching of your word and I don't care? And I think you should, God, bless me anyways. And are there areas of opportunity to turn from where you simply will not turn? Guys, there are, I hope every one of us sees our our own ourselves in Zedekiah. I hope as a congregation, we never get to the point where we say, there's no sense of faithlessness any place in this family. Because we need constantly and humbly to come before the Lord for help and for teaching and for admonishment and for repentance. When God's people do not honor God's name, he graciously removes all their earthly props. And that's where we are. He graciously is bringing this kingdom to an end to say to his people, listen, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and and will turn from their wicked ways, they'll pray to me and and seek my face. If you will do that, you will find me. We see in 2 Chronicles 7.14. And this passage today is the ultimate expression of this reality. His people turned away from him and did not humble themselves. And when that happens, God is gracious to bring the ashes. He is gracious to bring trouble. 
He, he sends warning signs ahead of time. And as we come into this, this first concept that we're looking at today, that in the midst of these ashes that we sit together sometimes, we are in the midst of these ashes, and God has been gracious to warn us that the ashes are coming. If we look over in Jeremiah chapter 29, the people had been warned prior to this. Jeremiah 29, um, Jeremiah has written a letter to the, the people who are now exiles. In verse 4, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. While you're in Babylon, build houses, settle down, plant gardens, and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in in number there. Do not decrease. Also seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. And he promises there, look, it's going to be 70 years. And as you go into Babylon, keep living your life. As you sit in the midst of the ashes, right? Keep living. Keep living that life. So when God's God's people do not honor God's name, he graciously removes all of the earthly props. He has brought them out of Jerusalem. And look at back in 2 Chronicles chapter 36, some of the things that he has removed from them. The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent the word to them, sent word to them through his messengers again and again. God graciously warns us before he brings judgment. The warnings of your life can take a lot of different forms. It could be the word of the Lord. It could be the reality of relational stress that you're in right now, day after day after day. And God's sending maybe a warning to you. Maybe it's the way that you spend money or the way that I spend money. And I keep bumping up against financial hardship. And as I bump up against financial hardship, I cry out, God, give me more money. And he's saying to me, to you, live differently so that you have more money. You don't need all of the things maybe that you set your heart on. It's a warning sign. It's a warning sign. And and we could give an example all through our life of different kinds of warning signs. Some of them are, are page and paper and they're words on a page from God to us. Maybe it's that God has sent into your your life somebody who's willing to confront you and say, here's some issues of inconsistency that you need to get right. Or maybe it's simply that God is saying to you, listen, that, that addiction that you have, if you are honestly going to seek my face, you are going to take have to take drastic measures to end that addiction so that you can serve me. God sends warning signals before he removes the earthly props. But look at the earthly props that he's removing here. They mocked God's messengers. They despised his words. They scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord was aroused against his people and there was no remedy. That is, it was finally time for the faithful God to say to the people who he loved, you have been unfaithful and you will face judgment. He brought up against them the king of the Babylonians who killed their young men 
with the sword in the sanctuary and spared neither young man nor young woman, old man or aged. God handed all of them over to Nebuchadnezzar. He carried to Babylon all the articles from the temple of God, both large and small, and the treasures of the Lord's temple and the treasures of the king of his officials. They set fire to God's temple and broke down the wall of Jerusalem. They burned all the palaces and destroyed everything of value there. He carried into exile to Babylon the the remnant who escaped the sword. So you hear what we're saying here? That God took away the, the palace and he took away the king. He removed the priests and he removed the temple. He removed them from Jerusalem and he removed the protection of Jerusalem's walls broken down. He, he completely took away everything that they viewed and when, when, when the things that you think can't be taken away are taken away, you're in the ashes. And you have opportunity to come back to God's word and ask, what do I learn when I sit in the ashes? Well, my hope that is that you see the extent of God's grace and mercy as he waited and called his people back to repentance. But also, as we continue to look into this passage, that you see the grace and mercy that God gives in the midst of these ashes. In the midst of ashes, there is hope for beauty. There is hope for beautiful things to happen. What is hope? Hope is the greatest of human responses. It reveals my limitations. It says, in essence... Uh, as I sit here in the midst of the ashes, I have an inner conviction that God is not through working yet. Do you have that? Your eyes are off the temple, and they're off the palace, and they're off Jerusalem, and they're on God. And he has removed maybe every prop that you could have leaned on and finally put you in a position where it's not the the temple that makes you happy and it's not the belonging to God's people in Jerusalem that makes you happy. It's this inner conviction and, and hope that the end of the story has not yet been written. As you sit in the ashes, God is at work. God doesn't need hope. He's the God of hope in the sense that he provides hope. You and I need hope because our plans can fail. And we can convince ourselves that there are certain things that God could never take away from us. And then our eyes can be opened one, one morning and we realize that things can be gone and we can be sitting surprisingly in the midst of these ashes where we thought God would never take that away. And he has. But he provides glimmers of hope as we go. Do you know that that the people were taken as captives in 586? I'm going to give you a history lesson, but I think we can do this together, and I think it'll make sense. In 605, 20 years before the fall of the temple, Daniel was taken captive. And I believe word got back to the people 
of what he said in Daniel chapter 1 and verse 8. But Daniel determined in his heart that he would not defile himself with a portion of the king's meat. And then 586 comes and the fall of the temple and they're taken to Babylon. Then all of them are taken to Babylon. And what comes our way next? One year later in 585, the king erects a 90-foot statue and says, now that you're all here in Babylon and Jerusalem is destroyed, I want you to worship this idol. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego stand and will not bow down to the idol. And they are brought before the king. And the king says, I thought I made it very clear that you had to worship my idol. And they say to him, King, we don't know if our God will save us. We know that he is able, but we don't know if he will save us. But whether he does or not is irrelevant because we will not bow down to your idol. And so the king has Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego thrown into the fiery furnace. And there they stand. The people that threw them into the fiery furnace die because it's so hot. And the king calls his attendants to him and says, Didn't we throw three guys into the fire? And his attendants say, Yeah, three guys. And the king says, I see four walking around in that fire. What's going on? One year after they're taken exiled into Babylon. All of the people, all of the exiles, get encouragement that there is somebody who is faithful. 575, Jeremiah dies. And all of his prophecies are, are thought through again while they mourn the death of Jeremiah. 573, Ezekiel has his second temple vision where he says to all of the captives, guys, Guess what? The Lord has come to me and he has shown me that the temple is going to be rebuilt. Do not lose heart. 539, they're still in Babylon. And the king comes up with a decree and says, nobody can pray to any god except for my gods. And Daniel bows at his window and prays to the living God and they throw him in the lion's den And word goes out to the exiled people that God is faithful. Listen, when you're in the ashes, the greatest gift you can give is faithfulness to the Lord. That's the greatest gift you can give. You don't know how a generation will be encouraged by your faithfulness. You don't know how many people are waiting back for somebody to take a bold stand and you don't know when it's not you who's the only one Who can do it? If you're in a work setting and you are waiting for somebody to take the lead of faithfulness in your work, you feel like your work setting is the ashes that I'm talking about today. And you are waiting for somebody to take the lead. The greatest thing you can do is take the lead in faithfulness to the Lord Jesus Christ. All through the 70 years of captivity, every few years, God provides this beautiful reality of somebody who acts in faithfulness to the Lord. And the hope of the people continues. 
and remains. Jeremiah chapter 29. We've already read that. They, where Jeremiah said to them before he died, before they went into captivity, he said, guys, he wrote to them while they were in captivity and said, this is going to be 70 years and then it's going to come to an end. And so there's hope in the midst of the, beauty, in the, midst of the ashes. And there's hope in the midst of the ashes because God keeps his promises. You say, I don't see the temple. I don't see uh, the palace. I don't see the walls. I don't see the land. Everything I thought God was going to reward, reward me with was gone. Yet there is hope in the midst of those ashes for beauty because God keeps his promises. Turn over to Isaiah chapter 44. And in Isaiah chapter 44, we have an amazing passage. It's amazing. Isaiah was a prophet of a previous era. Okay? So in Isaiah 44, he wrote this about a hundred years before the people went into captivity. And he wrote this with a name that we're going to read in just a minute, about 175 years before the king comes to the throne. But look at Isaiah chapter 44, verse 24. This is what the Lord says. Now keep in mind, when Isaiah wrote this, Israel is inhabited. Jerusalem is inhabited. There is relative peace everywhere. Isaiah says this. Your Redeemer who formed you in the womb, this is what the Lord says. I am the Lord who has made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself, who foils the signs of false prophets and makes fools of diviners, who overthrows the learning of the wise and turns it into nonsense, who carries out the words of his servants and fulfills the predictions of his messengers, who says of Jerusalem, it shall be inhabited, Of the towns of Judah, they shall be built. And of the ruins, I will restore them. Who says to the watery deep, be dry, and I will dry up your streams. Who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and will accomplish all that I please. He will say of Jerusalem, let it be rebuilt. And of the temple, let its foundation be laid. Now, just reading that, you see that word Cyrus there, and you think, well, okay, what is, what is that all about? Well, here's what it's about. There's no King Cyrus when this was written. This was written long before there was any King Cyrus to be found. And I want you to imagine with me that you're in Babylon, and you have been taken captive. You're one of the older men or women. You're familiar with the scrolls. You've read Isaiah and you have been rehearsing in your mind and it's now becoming clear what Isaiah 44 was talking about, that that Israel will have to be rebuilt and its streets will have to be repopulated and the temple will have to have a new foundation because it's all destroyed. And as you've been rethinking that in your heart all of those years, The name Cyrus has been burned deep, maybe, in your soul. And I want you to imagine that first day when a kid runs up to the old people in Babylon 
when a little kid runs up and says, there's a new king in Persia. And the elders sit there and say, okay, we're captive. We don't care. It doesn't affect us. And the kid says, and his name is Cyrus. And the elders of Judah are astonished because now it's just a matter of time because they know Isaiah 44 said Cyrus would be the one. Guys, if you're sitting in the midst of the ashes and you're holding on to the promises of God, it's just a matter of time until your eyes see the deliverance of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. God keeps his promises. In the midst of these ashes, there's hope for beauty because God keeps his promises faithfully. And I want to read as the worship team is going to come up here in just a minute. We're back now in Jeremiah chapter 29. So many times we go right to verse 11. I've had many high school kids say, I want my theme verse for my life to be Jeremiah 29, 11. And I say, have you read Jeremiah 29, 11? Yeah, I've read it. Do you know that all of the kids in Judah who heard Jeremiah 29, 11 heard it while they were captive in Babylon and most of them never experienced the reality of seeing Jerusalem again. They were prisoners their whole life. A whole generation was taken captive, and we will see later that when, the, uh, when Cyrus finally says, you can go free, and Nehemiah brings a bunch of people in, very few of the older people go back to rebuild the wall. Most of them stay in Babylon. So we're back to Jeremiah 29, and we're seeing how God keeps his promise faithfully, starting at verse 10. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my gracious promise to you to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord. And I hope your heart with mine Here's in those verses this reality. That when we think about 2 Chronicles chapter 7 and verse 14, there's a, there's a clause on there. If my people who are called by my name. Will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. 
and the gracious God of the universe, when people, when God's people are not faithful, God finds a way to make them faithful. God finds a way to remove all the props. God finds a way to get our eyes off of everything in this world that we could find to make us feel significant and to get our eyes back on him. And when God's people will not humble themselves, God humbles God's people. And he is faithful. And that's why in the midst of ashes, if you're there today, we can say with you, the ashes are gracious. God would not have been good had he allowed me to walk in disobedience all of my life, do what I want, and then I find at the end of my life that I don't belong to him. But he has been gracious to crush me so that he can rebuild me because he knows the plans he has for me, plans to bring me hope and a future. God is so good. He's got a plan for your life. And as we close up today, and and again, the team is coming, I want to remind you of where God has kept his covenant. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, God promised that he would send a forgiver for your sins. Right after humankind sinned, he said, I will send one to take care of the sin. In Genesis chapter 12, he said, Abraham, through you I will make my name great. In Genesis 15, he, he reminded him that, they were going, that he was going to make Abraham's name great. In Exodus chapter 20, at Mount Sinai, he makes the covenant with them where he gives them the Ten Commandments. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, he says, David is my guy and there will always be a, a king on his throne. In Jeremiah chapter 29, he says the old covenant will go away and the new covenant will come and I will put a heart of flesh in every person. And in Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, we read that when the time was perfect, God sent his son Jesus to Bethlehem. And even though through all history we have been faithless people, God has kept his promise. And your eyes can see Jesus. Amen.